Hello, it's Dawn, and this is my podcast, Dawnversations. It's a variety show about real life stuff, and there's something on here for everybody. So if that sounds good to you, let's go. Welcome to another episode of Dawnversations. Today we have Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I am so excited about this. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, also, Catherine just jumped in a river. So whatever that's about. <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> you know, I just moved up from San Francisco to Sacramento in Northern California. And one of the things is, is that it's, you know, 110 degrees here. And I'm not used to that being, you know, growing up on the coast. And so it gets really dry and hot. And I was feeling really sleepy this morning. So the way that I handle that is I go jump in the river, which is freezing because it's all of the melt off from the Tahoe area. Oh my, have you done that like many times? Okay. I just started doing it. My boyfriend's really into it. And when we first got together, it would be fights. (laughs) (laughs) He thought it was a great idea and I thought it was sounded completely miserable, but now I crave it. Ah, I, I I would be scared. Like, how does it, Okay, we are so off topic, but how is it? it your so, body, it's your kind body of part of it. It doesn't go into shock. You do. I mean, I usually go into about my knees and then I stand there for a little bit and just hold myself and <laughs> take deep <laughs> breaths and take deep breaths. And usually, you know, he just runs in and goes for it. So I just have to kind of coax myself and then all of a sudden I just dive in and I usually scream a lot afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> at least you're honest. I just, I can't, you know, cause I've heard that that cold stuff is supposed to be really good. Like if you're in the shower, you know, to turn it to cold for just to get yourself used to it. I, I can't even do that. I can't even do that. This I is just... totally different. There is something about just diving in and shocking the system. It really like, it's a great way to wake up. If you feel really sleepy, like if you have something that you have to do that day, like a podcast and you want to have a little bit more personality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I would be like then, but um, okay. Anyway, so Catherine- it's worth it. You should give it a shot, but you got to just, you just got to like full body go for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll think about it. Um, okay. I'm, I'm in the middle of the Midwest, so there's not real big body of water. Um, I'm in Nebraska. Oh, okay. Nice. So Catherine is on the show today. I was on your Instagram page and I kind of went down a rabbit hole. I was just like writing down every single thing that popped out of my mind that I wanted to talk to you about. It's all so fascinating. Uh, I'm just going to ask, why do people choose to play small in your opinion? Oh my goodness. Way to hit it out of the gate on that one. (laughs) Hey, you should be fresh. You're from the river. Let's go. (laughs) Well, I can tell you about my experience. I think there's a lot of, you know, for me, it was a matter of feeling like I didn't have permission for it. If I, I felt like if I allowed myself to think too highly of myself or be too confident that it would disconnect me from other people. Hmm. And so when, you know, one of our biggest drives as human, I think is to connect with other people. And so we do everything that we can, which is why I'm so fascinated by shadow work to begin with but we do everything we can to make sure that we can stay connected to other people. And it's almost like we have this story in our mind that if we get too big, too bold, too proud, too anything, that people aren't going to be able to connect us and we're going to be outcast from everybody else. And I know that that was a big thing for me growing up in terms of, um, in some ways, fearing my confidence. 
because I wasn't sure that I would relate to other people or people would relate to me if I, if I stepped into that role. I think that there was a fear of it. There was a fear of if I stepped into that power part of myself that I wouldn't relate to people anymore and they wouldn't relate to me. And that now I see is just a very ego mindset, Mm -hmm. right? That there would be separation. It's an idea that there is such a thing as separation. Right. Your mom passed away when you were seven, correct? When I was eight. Yes. Okay. Eight years old. Okay. And I, that had to have been so traumatizing as a little girl to go through that. But then it sounded like you went through so much more than, I mean, with your dad moving, I was watching a thing that you were talking about and I was just like, that was a lot for a little person to take on. Did that, is that what put you in this path, this direction of pushing your emotions down? I think it was a combination of things. Um, You know, this was back in, my mom died in 81. So uh, it was a while ago and she had Lou Gehrig's disease. So I don't know if you know anything about ALS, but it's a very, it it lasts about five years for her. It lasted about five years from the time she was diagnosed to the time that she passed. So it was the majority of my young life. She was very sick. And um, when you have a parent who requires so much, in terms of needs, you get this story in your mind that your needs are just not as important. Right. And um, so she was very sick. She required a lot. My dad was not emotionally capable of handling what was going on. So he just avoided the whole thing as much as he possibly could. And so it was basically my brother and I, my brother's only 19 months older than I am, but he very much took on the role of, of parent to me which sounds crazy considering we're so close in age, but it's just kind of what you do when that happens, right? He felt like he had this idea that he was the man of the house, I think at that point. And that was a phrase that people used a lot to him. And so he took on that role for me and he stuck around and took care of my mom as much as he could. Um, And so I think because of the fact that there's somebody else in the house that has needs that seem to be much more important than, than ours, you just learn to abandon the fact that you have needs and you start to feel a little bit more self-reliant that that's more important. At least that's the story that I created. And then when my mother passed, my father was not capable of taking care of us. So he left us with extended family members, which is how we came to San Francisco and who were wonderful. It was actually his ex-wife and his daughters from his previous marriage that adopted us. Now his daughters were in their twenties. So they were adults at the time. And so those three, three women um, generously brought my brother and I in, but it was of this era where there was no talking about what was going on. You know, it was kind of like the mindset of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and Mm -hmm. get it done and be strong and be powerful. So nobody was telling me that she was dying. So I had no preparation for that. So my mother's death was a complete shock. And then my father leaving was like secondary shock. And then moving in with a new family that we didn't really know that well was very shocking. And then in that family, there was this encouragement. They were very loving. We got private school education. We grew up in a beautiful town and a beautiful home. Uh, But there was this mindset of I don't know why you're sad. I don't know why you're acting out. You should be grateful that you're not in an orphanage. Like you should be grateful that you're not in foster care. So wipe off those tears and be grateful and move forward. And I think the combination of that, all of those things were just 
I interpreted those as, okay, don't act out, be a good girl. Don't go to the orphanage. Don't be a bad girl. Cause you're going to go to the orphanage right. and don't show any emotion. Cause you're not really allowed to do that. And so just be even tempered, be nice, be quiet, be this. It just felt like there was a lot. My mind took that and just went with a lot of rules around what I was allowed to be and what I wasn't allowed to be. And at no point was there a lot of talking about any of it. Holy crap. I know. <laughs> Gosh. So was it because of their culture or just their personalities? Like why in the world wouldn't somebody, especially I would think a woman be so sensitive towards you and just be like, oh my God, you lost your mom and basically your dad and you pulled out of your home. Like why, why wasn't there sympathy there? Well, I just want to point out before I say this too, that I am very grateful to this family. They were very loving to me, but I think the um, matriarch of the family was from the depression era. So it was almost kind of like, we all have stuff to deal with and yours is not really any more than anybody else's. And so um, years later, a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a book. And while I was writing this book, she's now, she's still alive. She's in her mid nineties. And I thought, you know, she was the only real adult that was around during that time. So I have questions about what happened because I have my story and then there might be her story, right? Who was an adult at the time. So I interviewed her and I asked her because what happened is they chose to send me to therapy, but not my brother. And I asked her what was behind that because now I've done all this self work. I, you know, I'm very involved in, in this aspect of myself and getting to know myself and my brother is not. And I wanted to know what the thought process was behind putting me to therapy into therapy and not my brother. Cause at that time in my mind, that told me that I was wrong, that there was something wrong with me, right. there was something defective about me. And so she said that I was acting out. She said she would ask me to set the table and I would like slam the fork down and it would be this act out. And so she felt like I just wasn't handling it well. And I said, well, my brother was in school, in school and getting into fights all the time. He was acting out with a lot of rage. He was being aggressive towards me. And she said, oh, well, um, but he's a boy. No. And so when you ask about the mindset of it, to me, that's a really, that shows a lot about the mindset that was there at that time. Wow. That is fascinating. Honestly, <laughs> what, what I do have to tell you, John, when I was sitting in that, in that interview, I was just like, I had to do a lot of body centering. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on your hands. <laughs> As now, you know, a woman in her forties looking down and thinking about what I would have wanted in my experience and all of that, like listening to this, it was just like, okay, I have rage in my heart. <laughs> right. right. Like, what are you saying? Crazy woman. That's nice. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's something else. So I think at some point I just cut myself off from feeling because I was told directly or indirectly that it was just not acceptable. And, and it took me to be, to be well into my forties to realize that I can simultaneously be grateful and experience grief at the same time. I really thought that one negated the other. Oh, when you said um, one of the things you said, I put it down in quotes, you had a collision course of emotions. Mm. Uh, you need to patent that or something. I when you said I was like, wow, that is such a profound statement because you have all of these feelings that maybe you feel like you shouldn't be having and then you have to 
pretend that you're having other feelings, that has to be so conflicting inside, especially being a little kid. It is very conflicting. It took me a long time, but I think what happened is I cut myself off actually from feeling, actually feeling like physical felt sense. Like, like I think I numbed myself on a certain level to my physical sensation. And so it's not something that I realized I was doing. It's just, I think, you know, now in retrospect, when I look back, I think that for most of my life I was in shock. And what happened is, so I, you know, get into my teenage years and I start doing a lot of drugs and I'm specifically attracted to stimulants. And I did stimulants pretty regularly for a little bit under 10 years, I would say on and off between my teenage years and my, my mid twenties. And then there was, you know, a period where it was very regular. And, and now I think of it as me trying to find some way to feel myself again. I just didn't really know how. And I loved the feeling of being on these types of drugs because I could feel my heartbeat. I felt extreme emotion. You know, when I was on it, I was extremely happy. When I was off of it, I was extremely sad. But there was something about touching in on those feelings that I think that I was attracted to. And I just didn't know what I was looking for at the time. Wow. What is, what is a stimulant? Is that like cocaine or is that speed? So Coke, uh, you know, I was into crystal for a little while, crystal meth. Wow. I, I have never admitted out loud, especially on a podcast before, because there's so much stigmatism to it, but it really is. It was something that I was searching for some sort of feeling. I was searching for some sort of connection. And in those, with those drugs in particular, you can share yourself. You can be more vulnerable with the people that you're around. And so I think I was looking for that connection because I didn't know how to do it otherwise. I was looking to feel my body because I didn't know how to do it otherwise. And I was able to ask for things that I wanted when I was on those drugs that I wasn't able to do otherwise because otherwise it felt too vulnerable. How did you get out of that? Well, I, um, so I was probably about 23 or 24 and, you know, I'd been living on my own because when I was a senior in high school, my family was basically, my adopted family was basically like, okay, we've completed our mission with you. So have fun <laughs> out in the world. You can go and now. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> and so that's really when the drugs, you know, I started to become really active in drugs at that point. And I think, cause I was just so lost and I felt really alone in the world. And when I was about 23, I, had scored this job that seemed for me to be the first adult job. I had worked my whole life because, you know, I had to support myself, but uh, it was the first adult job. I got into corporate sales and there was so much counting on me and the pay was really good. And it was money that I never thought that I would be able to make. Cause at that time I hadn't gone to college and I was just kind of really lost. And so I think the the responsibility of this job and me knowing that I had to, keep it together in order to keep this job to support myself was what motivated me to finally stop. And it didn't take me much, honestly. I mean, I know that that's not common, but I, I didn't, it didn't take much for me to stop doing them, which sounds then, crazy because that's not common for those kinds of drugs. Oh my gosh. I know. That's why I was just like, that took a lot of restraint, especially as a young person to get out of that lifestyle. And that had to have been a, like your friend group and everything. It was definitely my friend group. I was in a relationship. I'd been in an 11-year relationship at that point. Or, or, you know, we were about six years into it at that point. But in total, I was with him for about 11 years. 
And so we just decided together that I said, this is what I need to do. I need to make this money and I need to do something with my life because I, I see where this is going and I can't do this. And he was like, okay. And so we decided to do it together. Well, and then, uh, so that's around 23. So then I'm working this job and I'm you know miserable at this job. And I, I remember not really feeling great, but not really knowing what I was feeling. I was still smoking a lot. I was drinking a lot. And one of my uh, friends said, hey, let's go jump out of an air, airplane. So we drove up to Davis and we jumped out of an airplane at 14,000 feet. And I wasn't nervous. I didn't think anything of it. I landed. And I remember looking over at my friend because she jumped just before me and she's jumping up and down so excited. And I remember feeling like I had to pretend like I was as excited as she was. So I like jumped up and down with her and was like hugging her. And she was, you know, so excited. And I remember the feeling of feeling like I had to fake my excitement because I actually didn't feel anything. And I drove home that day with her and I never mentioned anything to her. She wasn't that close of a friend, but I, I remember thinking, that's not a good sign. I just jumped out of an airplane and I didn't really care. And so I found this therapist. I called him up and I said, I think I need to see a therapist. And he said, what are you coming in for? And I said, I think I might be apathetic. And so I went to go see him and he kept asking me, how, do you, how does that feel in your body? How does that feel in your body? How do you feel about that? And I would get frustrated with him because I didn't know what he was asking of me. Mm -hmm. It made no sense. I was so disconnected from my body that I couldn't even tell him a sensation of anger. I couldn't tell him a sensation of excitement. And so he suggested that I try yoga and, and it just started to change everything. So um, when you were describing that, when I was watching you on, I was basically stalking you <laughs> on Instagram. I was watching like all these interviews and stuff. I was just like, wow. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it really was interesting how much it did for you in every aspect, mentally, emotionally, physically. It wasn't just going to a one hour yoga session for you. No, I mean, I had tried to do workout sessions, other kinds of workouts before, and I just never really did anything. But it was the combination of the teacher inviting me into uh, an awareness of like, what do you feel in this moment? How do you feel here? And 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 so it's the constant invitation into presence during the practice that was really important to me. It was the combination of those two things. So I don't know how I stuck with it, honestly. Like I think back to that day and I, I want to give my former self a hug and just be like, I don't know how you went from where you were to that, to the girl that religiously started going to yoga, knowing how I was before and how disconnected I was before. I'm so grateful to her right now in my life that it brings tears to my eyes that there was something in her that decided to show up for herself in this way. But I started going to these yoga classes and then eventually ended up leaving my fiance, leaving my you know, career, going back to school or going to school for the first time and studying social psychology. And, um, and it was there in social psychology, I, I was starting to, you know, in yoga, I was starting to feel myself. I was starting to, I would cry in Shavasana. I would walk home from the yoga studio to my house. And, you know, in San Francisco, there's all these hills and I would notice my heartbeat and I would notice the strength of my legs. And I started to feel myself. It was almost like a thawing. And I've, I've read a lot about people who've had disassociation how when they come back into themselves, it feels like a thawing. So I think that's what was happening to me as I was starting to thaw from this disconnection. 
And so in school, I was introduced to Carl Jung and his oh, idea love. of inner shadow. I know I was just listening to your session about synchronicity and loving every minute of it. I was like drooling <laughs> as I was coming back from the river. <laughs> like that's a normal thing to say. When I came back from the river. When um... they came back the river, I was drooling over <laughs> synchronicity. <laughs> No, yeah, I love that stuff. That stuff that just makes your head feel like it's going to explode. It's so interesting, you know, and that those people have been around for a long time that thought that way, you know, they just had to have been thought of as freaks because of the stuff that they were saying. But now, you know, now we all get it. Now we all get it. So many, you know, so many years later. But so, yeah, I was introduced to Carl Jung and the idea of the shadow was just, I feel like my life was bringing me to that point. That's what it felt like when I started to study that. And so all of a sudden, I felt like the yoga that I was doing was starting to make sense. The idea that there's these things that we don't know about ourselves was so mind blowing to me because at that time, we just have this idea that we know everything we need to know. I think now like one of the biggest shadows people have is the idea that they don't have a shadow. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, yeah. Or like, we think we all know ourselves so well, like we know ourselves inside and out. And I'll, I, no, we don't. No, we don't no. at all. And and the people that are around us all the time, they're like, no, you don't. <laughs> you yeah. don't have a clue what you're like. <laughs> it's all just kind of little, you know, like I think, have you ever seen that picture of the iceberg in the water? Yes. And where the tip of the iceberg that's out of the water is like how the world sees you. Right. And then underwater, this there's this huge glacier. And so, you know, normally when you see that picture, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yes, I okay. do. So normally it's like the tip of the iceberg is out of the water and they say that's that's what people see. And then you look below the water and it's this huge glacier. And normally what they say with that image is, and what's under the water is you and who you are. And right. I like to divide that glacier into three parts. So there's the tip that's out of the water. And then there's that huge glacier under the water. And the middle part is what you know, your beliefs, the things that you know about yourself. But below that, at the very bottom tip, are the parts that you don't know. And so that's, I like to look at that, that glacier image and think of it that way. There's these parts that, that we can share with people about who we are that they don't see. So part of it is learning what our own needs are and learning what that stuff is so we can communicate that with other people. And then the other part of the work is getting to know the lower part, which is the stuff we don't know, which yeah. is coming up and bubbling up into the above water behaviors. That's so interesting. Well, and your belief system is, you know, ingrained in you, but it can change. Like, I'm sure you have a totally different belief system now than you did when you were 23 years old, you know? Absolutely. And I can, I, I would imagine that that's probably too, true for most people. For me, I've actively worked on uh, shadow stuff. I mean, the reason I think another reason why I loved it so much is because growing up with the childhood that I had, it felt like there were so many elephants in the living room, if you know the phrase that mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Yep. And I remember as a child pointing out things like this doesn't feel right. And then having that be like, why are you being a pain in the butt right now? And so there's something in me that really wants to continue to point out the elephant in the living room, which is why shadow exploration, I think, really appealed to me because it's looking at what is the thing that I don't know that's getting in the way. I can sit here and try to change everybody around me, but we all know how exhausting that is. 
Right. And so the better thing, the easier thing, and the more productive thing is to look at what I don't know and how that's playing into how I'm communicating with other people, how I'm feeling about myself, what I'm going for in terms of what I, my life's desire and what I'm hiding from. Right. Is it because you feel like you're the, you're the only thing that you can change? You can spin yourself in circles trying to get somebody else to do something, or you can just worry about your side of the fence. And it's something that, you know, I, I teach this, this program, the shadow alchemy program, which is where I teach a methodology to do the self discovery work. And it's a phrase that I hear people that have done this program all the time say, it's like, I'm just working on my side of the fence. That's all I can do right now. You know, it's kind of like, if you want change in the world, you got to be the change. Right. If, if, the, if we're not looking at these shadows, if we're not looking at the parts of ourselves that we don't know, then we're constantly projecting them onto other people and making other people own them. I call that the ugly outfit. It's like <laughs> I, take, I take an ugly outfit out of my closet and I hang it around your neck and I pretend that you're the one that's holding it, not me or wearing it. Right. Yeah. That projection. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, it's so such a mind twisting thing, you know, because it's like, why do you do this all the time? Why do you do this? And it's like, wait, maybe I'm the one that's actually the one that does it all the time. But it's easier just to get mad at somebody else for your flaws. It's so crazy. Absolutely. Because there's that moment of like, wait, is it me? Oh, man. You know, it's like, oh no, I don't want God, because all of a sudden that means I have to do stuff around that. I mean, I could ignore it for a little while, but once you know it, you can't unknow it. Right. And so it's the awareness of something, the awareness that it's you and not the other person can be really defeating because it's like, now I have to do something. I could pretend it's not me, but now I know it's me. Right. And so I either can just ignore it and feel bad about myself, or I can do something about it and change, but that do something feels like a lot sometimes because what can happen is we personalize it. So like if I'm projecting, you may have watched the video that I said about emotional unavailability, where I dated a lot of people that were emotionally unavailable because I was emotionally unavailable, but I didn't know I was emotionally unavailable. My story was that I've done a lot of self-work. I'm a great communicator. I, you know, I'm studying psychology. I'm doing coaching. I'm a yogi. I know all of this stuff. That was my story. And so when I'm dating people who are emotionally unavailable, I can be like, why aren't you doing this? Why don't you fix yourself? Why don't you go to therapy? Why don't you look at ways to be more vulnerable? And then when I would be around people that were actually showing up and then challenging me to show up, I was like, well, that person is crazy. I don't know what's wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> and the moment, that I, the moment that I realized that it was me that was emotionally unavailable was so shocking because it went against this identity that I had, I had subscribed to for so long. Yeah. And then it was like, well, now I have to figure out how to become emotionally available. What does that mean? <laughs> It sounds like a full-time job. <laughs> what do you mean I have to be vulnerable? Right. Well, so when I'm trying to be vulnerable with people that are emotionally unavailable, it's easy because then I can say I'm the one that's being vulnerable and it's them that's not allowing it. It's keeping me safe in that story. Should you or anyone, I'm just you as a, everybody, um, <laughs> should you, like, if you have a bone to pick with somebody, 
should you think, is it actually me before you even like come at them about it? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. From my process, from my personal process, I always like to look at my side of the fence first before I approach anybody so that I can come to the conversation with intention and with self-awareness so that one, I know what I'm really asking of them as opposed to just pointing the finger at them. And two, if they say something to me that's pointing the finger at me, I am not as reactive to it. Sure. I've, I've done some soul searching at that point about this. And so one of the exercises that I have people do um, is what I call the rant, which is, you know, on a piece of paper, just do a complete dump of somebody that you are really pissed at or that you have a chronic, you know, conflict Mm -hmm. with and look at what are the traits about this person that are making you so mad and writing down those traits. And what does it mean about them as a person? to behave in this way? Well, it means that they're selfish. Okay. Now, how do you feel about that? Is there a lot of rage? Is there a lot of, like, are you really triggered by that? And you can kind of tell because when somebody gets into the point where they have a lot of emotional feedback from a a story that they're telling you about somebody else, that's a good place to look at see, to see where you might be reflecting in that. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of those words, though, are kind of like buzzwords, like trigger Mm. and boundaries and, you know, emotionally unavailable. I mean, they're important statements. Yeah, like they're they're so overused anymore that it's just like nobody even knows what to make of them or they don't even take them as serious as what somebody means them anymore because there's so much different conflicting information out there. I totally get it. So when I say trigger, I'm talking about what pisses you off. Right. Right. Where you, where, where you start talking about something, like say you're talking to a girlfriend of yours and you're like, yeah. And and then I went to the store and then he said this, and then you know what he did that moment. (laughs) Right. 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 What did he do? Well, he did this. Well, what kind of person doesn't make him that he did that? Well, you know what? He was just, he's just so self-centered. I can't stand how self-centered he is. And now you're pissed. Okay that would be an interesting place to talk about. And then, so what is it? What is your story? And I'm going through this stuff really fast, which this is actually a much longer process than the way that I'm explaining sure, it right now. Sure. But so then my next question would be, okay, well, let's talk about how you see yourself. And if you were to list some characteristic traits about how you are and what you value about yourself, I bet it would be the opposite. What would show up would be the opposite of self-centered. So I was listening to your podcast about the law of attraction and one of the, I love the universal laws. And what I was thinking about as I was listening to it is part of the shadow exploration is understanding the law of polarity. The law of polarity is that all things have an opposite, right? So if I'm saying, you know what, if I tell you a, a list of who I am, I am somebody who is caring, I'm kind, I am funny, I'm thoughtful. And if I were to look at the opposite of those things, okay, selfish, uh, intense, um, mean, mean, you know, whatever the opposite would be. And I look at that list, for most people, they'll say, well, I'm definitely this list, but I'm not this other list. I'm not the other side. Right. There's no way on those things. And the law of polarity says, actually, you're all things. 
through both because that's when life is in harmony. You can't have joy, like we've heard, we can't have joy without rage. And so I think that's what was happening when I was a child is I was told, well, you're supposed to be grateful, but don't have any grief. Okay, so I'm supposed to be happy, but I'm not allowed to have any sadness, but sadness comes from the same place because it's all my emotional center. So you're telling me I can't have one, but I'm allowed to have the other. So I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to cut off both. How old were you when you started to feel like, I mean, because you were basically like reborn. How, how old were you when you, when you felt like, I, I feel like I know who I am now? I, oh, I, I don't know. Has that happened yet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're still lost. Okay. <laughs> well, no, no I, I mean, what, what I have now, which I did not have before, because God knows I'm still very human and I'm, I'm still working through life the way that I'm trying to work through life the best I can. But right. what I have now that I didn't have before were proven tools to help me process. So when I started studying the shadow, um, I learned some from Carl Jung, but really I got into it with Ken Wilber. A lot of his work is talks about shadow. And so that's really where I, I learned a lot. And when I started to do shadow process, it's hard to find these things that you don't know about yourself on your own. And I was in San Francisco at the time, you know, this was in uh, the late nineties, early aughts. And <laughs> I would call, I would, you know, see a book about the shadow, which there weren't that many. And I would call the author and be like, how can I study with all these people? I was trying to find a way to study with somebody. And I remember finding this couple in Marin and they were like, yeah, you come over to her house and you take off your clothes and we're going to roll you in a tarp. And then you're going to unroll you and we're going to rebirth you into this new person. And this is how we do shadow work. And I was like, it was so nice talking to you. I'm going to go now. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> These were the types of people that were doing shadow process at that time. And it just felt so out there. And all I wanted was just a way to discover myself. And so through a lot of study, I came up with this system where it's a step-by-step -step system of like, okay, I get emotionally triggered, which means I, something pisses me off. This right. is what I do when that happens. And then when I figure that out, this is what you do when that happens. And this is what you do. So it's a step-by-step -step process to look into and identify these parts of ourselves that we've been avoiding for so long. And so when I say I have this tool, now I have this method that this is what I teach people in, in my workshop. But for me, it's so ingrained in my way of thinking. It's just a mental process for me right now. So that coupled with yoga are tools that I have that help me really work through situations in my life that where there's friction. What does that look like? So like you do not have a knee jerk response in most cases anymore. Like something happens, somebody cuts you off on the, and you just breathe. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I get pissed for a little while. <laughs> but you, like, no. you don't let it make your day. It doesn't, you don't take it through the rest of the day. You just, you can, you're able to let things go easier. I just don't take it to the next level. I mean, where it really shows up in, in, is in my communication with my relationships, my friends, my partners, where before I would just be very reactive and get mad or blame them. And now I have a process for understanding why I reacted that way, like why I have that feeling or what is it that I really want out of this situation? And so if we have some sort of friction or conflict, instead of me 
burning the house down, which is what I used to do before. That was my way of doing it. It was just like, you know, sharp tongue, walk out the door. I'm done with you. That was how I handled things, which is not good for emotional intimacy. It's not good for longevity of relationship. No. And so now I have a very thoughtful way of engaging with my friends and all of them will tell you the ones that I've had for a long time will tell you that it's night and day in terms of how I am with them. I'm very clear about what I want. I can communicate in a way that feels loving towards them, but still very empowered in who I am and what I want to happen. Um, But it's taken a long time to get there. But these are the tools that I have to rely on to help me with that. Is your course that you teach, is that your job? Is, are, is that, are you a therapist or what is your job? I'm not a therapist. No, I have, uh, I'm a full time, I have an online yoga studio. So on my website, liminalspace.net, uh, once the pandemic started, I launched this. I was just doing this out of studios before, but now I'm completely on my own. So I have weekly yoga classes with a membership where we do monthly meetings. Most of the people that are in my membership uh, have done some shadow work with me. And then I do uh, shadow alchemy, which is I do that twice a year. It's a six week online program where I teach this methodology. So people are doing yoga. They're learning about the methodology. They're learning about the concept of inner shadow and how to discover it in themselves and then better ways to communicate in their relationships and get to know what their needs are and wants are and what's holding them back. So interesting. Well, are you able to do one little hint on what other tools you can use to find your shadow? What besides yoga helped you like are there any other ways where people can or do you think people already know what their issues are (laughs) they don't need to go on a discovery oh my goodness no I think everybody should go on a discovery you know a lot of times when I'm talking to clients they'll tell me about a conflict that they had with somebody else and most of the time if the conflict goes to a level where it becomes a, a really difficult a difficult situation my first question is always like does this it just sounds like that person doesn't know themselves And I think that's where a lot of conflict in relationship happens is not knowing enough about yourself to be able to have an honest conversation with the other person about what you want from them. And um, I think that yoga is an aspect of shadow exploration, but understanding what the stories are in your mind. So in the program that we do, we look at what our personal identity stories are, like what stories we created about who we are and who we don't think we're allowed to be as children, what we've numbed ourselves to in terms of our felt experience. And then thirdly, what, how our cultural story is influencing the way that we think about ourselves. And so we look at all of that. And then I, I teach something that's called the shadow clues, which are ways to start to discover what you're trying to run away from in terms of parts of yourself. So one of them I'll give you one that is an easy one to pick up on, I call distancing language and nearing language. So starting to listen to yourself in terms of, I'm always the type of person that's going to give my lunch away to somebody else. I would never be selfish. So when we hear these absolutes, the shadow is, is developed on this idea of absolutes, right? Like you can only be one thing and not the other. And so when you start to hear the language of absolutes in the way that you talk about yourself or you hear other people talk about themselves, it's what I call a shadow clue. So it's like a little dinger that says, "Ooh, maybe there's something there to look into because you're really trying very hard to present yourself one way and to distance yourself from being seen as another thing. Oh, my gosh, that's so fascinating. (laughs) 
Oh, it is. We are such complex beasts. We are so complex. And I think the reason that I love this work so much is because the goal, because some people come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, that sounds really interesting, but really deep and intense. And I don't know if I can do it. And I, I like to remind people that the goal is to have lightness in your life. The goal is to not be bogged down. The goal is to have more harmony in your engagements. And so we look at the areas that where there's friction and then we think, okay, what is it that I don't know about myself that could be contributing to this friction? Where is my growing edge? And we work on that for a while. And then we step away from it and live in the world for a little bit. And then friction happens somewhere. And then we think, okay, what is there that I don't know about myself that could be contributing to this? And then we work through it. And then hopefully there's harmony in that area. So it seems like, I think a lot of times when people talk about shadow exploration, it's like this really deep, intense stuff, which it can be, it can definitely be hard to reconcile with sometimes, but the goal is to not live in that place. The goal is to have a lightness of being afterwards. Oh, that's so awesome. I did a podcast probably a year ago and I said in the middle of it, I said, the deeper you go, the lighter you feel. And mm. this lady was like, oh, my God, I'm going to steal that. That was, <laughs> that was phenomenal. But it just came to me because it's true. Some of this stuff is deep. And it's like, ooh, that sounds not fun. I think I'll just go drink wine instead. But it's like, no, if you really want to feel lighter and better, you got to do the deep, heavy work. But it doesn't have to all be at once. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be at once. And it, and it doesn't have to be on your own. Cause I think sometimes people are like, well, God, that's really embarrassing stuff. I wouldn't want anyone to know that about me. So I'm not going to go do shadow work with this person because, or shadow exploration with this person, because I would hate for them to look at me and know this thing that I don't want anyone to see. And one of the things I reassure people when they first start my program is part of the thing that you're going to worry about is that you are going to be embarrassed to have other people see maybe some aspects of you, but you should know that everybody already sees it. I hear this, I, this description of shadow all the time as it's the mask that you live in. And the only reason I don't like that description is because there is an indication or implication that I get up in the morning, I put my clothes on, I put my mask on, I go out in the world, I pretend to be this person, and then I come home and it's like taking off your bra and putting your pajamas on, all of a sudden you're comfortable, you take your mask off and everything feels good. When that's not true, no one's the bigger believer in the mask than you are. If Don, I don't know if you're partnered, but if you were to ask your partner, if you were to come, if you were to discover a shadow with me right now, and then you were to go to your partner and say, hey, I just discovered this thing about myself, chances are your partner would be like, yeah, I already <laughs> knew that. But here you are working really hard, creating all of this energy, spending all of this energy trying to protect an identity that's the opposite of that. Right. And that's a lot of energy expenditure. Yeah. When instead you could be reserving that energy and spending it on the relationships and the presence that you have with the people that are around you. And so you're the one that believes this storyline more than anybody else. But it's important to be in community because what happens and the reason I love doing shadow stuff, because people will come to me, I do do one-on-one -on -one work with people, but I prefer it after they've already done the group work because part of the beauty of the group work is seeing other people reconcile with that part of themselves 
or seeing other people like say selfish is a big shadow of yours that you learned really young that it wasn't okay to be selfish that you should be a good generous girl and so anything that seems selfish to you and other people is really annoying like you just can't stand it in other people and so now you're doing this shadow program and there's somebody else in the room and they have no problem with that, that side of themselves. And they're talking about selfish as if it's no big deal. All of a sudden you have this opportunity to see somebody who's okay with that part of themselves. And in that, it gives you permission to start to like, well, maybe I can be that too, because I really like Dawn and she seems to be fine with selfish. And I don't think that anything of her. And so maybe I've been looking at it wrong. Right. That's just mind blowing. It really <laughs> is. I love it. Um, okay. So tell people how they can find you. Um, I'm on liminalspace.net. And so you can take yoga classes with me there. If you join my mail list, I actually send you a free pre-recorded full length, uh, what I call shadow alchemy class. So the style of yoga that I teach is not your typical style of yoga. It's basically floor stretching. And it's a very deep practice into how you feel sensation in your body throughout the entire class. I'm really inviting you into a level of presence that even if you're not doing a lot of movement afterwards, you feel so embodied because you're constantly calling your awareness into the felt experience of your body, which essentially is shadow exploration. And so if you're interested in checking that out, you can sign up for my newsletter and you'll get a free pre-recorded class. You can take a class with me. I teach um, four or five classes a week online. And then twice a year, I host a six-week program called Shadow Alchemy, where we do all of it. You do yoga. I teach you the theory of it. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with you, specifically working on um, different areas of your life, specifically relationships. And work through this, teach you this method, methodology for uncovering these hidden aspects of yourself so that you can continue to do the work when friction comes up in your life on your own. Catherine, I enjoyed this conversation so much. You were just on. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. And um, I'll be in touch soon and let you know when it's going to air and all that good stuff. Okay. That sounds great. All right. Thanks so much. We'll talk later. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.